This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. I help business owners not to be lonely at the top. In this week's episode, we speak to Howard Moss, owner and CEO of Astonish. Howard explains how the company, founded by his passionate and entrepreneurial father, has developed from, his quotes, the panic and chaos of early days on Mingwood Road, to competing with the likes of P&G and Unilever. He tells us how installing basic processes moved the company forward, introduces us to a legendary salesperson, Mike Allen, and explains how you go about expanding a product range. He also teaches us, in three simple steps, how to be a great business owner. To make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Lead Business Podcast, sign up to our priority list at www leadsbusinesspodcast.com everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business so let's get into what is a really astonishing interview on today's episode of leads business podcast we have howard moss owner and i was gonna say founder but it was your dad that founded astonish wasn't it morning howard morning hi phil yes that's correct it's uh it was my father that founded the business some 50 years ago now. Okay, fantastic. Go on, give us a give us a brief a brief history of Astonish, how your dad started it and, and how we came to, well, not what we are now, but how you got to Astonish. So my father, he, he left school pretty much with nothing and he went to get a job as a salesperson and one of them roles that he came across was being a demonstrator and um, he started demonstrating a product for um, a guy that had various different exhibition slots around the country at agricultural shows, and he became a demonstrator. And there was a, a multi-purpose cleaning product that he was, you know, became, if you like, an expert at demonstrating. Fantastic! And that was a that was an oven cleaner, is that right? That's right. It was a. I guess it was a bit before its time. So we're here today about all these, you know, sustainability and, um, you know. Uh, non-corrosive and all these ethical things that people want to, you know, give their products. And like I say, some 50 years ago, he was demonstrating a product that had all of these aspects to it. And as part of the demonstration, you know, they would even go to the extent of putting some of the products on their tongue and showing how, you know, naturally safe it was and how it wouldn't harm you. So I guess it was well before its time, this multi-purpose cleaning paste. Fantastic. And, and he, Am I right in saying he, he took it out to the States and it became a success over there and then came back to the UK? Is that right? Yeah, because these shows, after he initially was working for this guy that had these shows and then from there took over the exhibition slots that he had, they only ran for a certain period in the UK. So when it was the off-season, he had nothing to do. So again, being very entrepreneurial, he, t- he took it to the States and tried to basically mirror image what he'd done in the UK in various different locations around the US. Okay. And uh, and that product wasn't wasn't called Astonish, was it? It was was it Clint, is that right? That's right, Phil. Um so this initial product that he went to demonstrate for this guy um, was called Clin, K-L-I-N. Um and when he took it over to the States, somebody had purchased the product absolutely loved it, used it, and they were um, one of the senior partners at a department store in New York. So they 
they got in touch. And in them days, obviously, no internet. So they couldn't do the research on who I guess they thought at the time might have been some, you know, global, you know, UK manufacturing firm. So they sent a fax and they said, you know, can you get in touch? We love your product. We'd like to bring it into our own stores under our own brand name. And will you come over to this? Can we bring you over to the States to, to basically go through a marketing process to come up with a brand name for it? And they, and they came up with Astonish. And they came up with Astonish. And again, one of the, you know, key aspects of the branding, aside from the wording Astonish, was also to put a half union jack on top of the, uh, the Astonish wording at the time to obviously signify that the product was British made. Right. Okay. Okay. And that was, like you say, that was your father. So how did you get involved? So I basically, it wasn't something, Phil, that was intentional. It wasn't something that I guess was naturally roadmap for me. I, after my studies, I went to university in Manchester and I guess I was doing a business and marketing degree there and I saw myself going into retail. I, you know, at the time, a lot of the value variety chains that you see today like Home Bargains and B&M, et cetera, they were just sort of starting out at that time and starting to have a little bit of a presence in the UK market. And I just wanted to get into retail and see where that took me. So I was going to, after finishing at university, I was going to send off for a training management role at either a John Lewis or an M&S, thinking of one of the best retailers to get experience with. And I actually came out of university after two years so that left me in a position where I had to go out and work. I needed money. I didn't want to go back home to live after having two years of independence. So just as an interim, um, I started helping my dad, which was based down on Meanwood Road in, um, in Leeds in a, what was, you know, a very small independent business. Okay. So it's amazing actually you speak to people and the amount of people who accidentally go into jobs for a short time and then are still there. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So you go in, you're at Beewood Road, you're doing stuff. How did that sort of short term become long term? So, you know, at the time, it, it's like I say, it wasn't something that either my father or certainly myself thought was going to be my career and, and, and ultimately would take me where I am today. It was something where I was just helping out. It was a small independent business. There was no proper structure to it, Phil. It was a, a typical, if you like, entrepreneurial sole trader almost. My father was a demonstrator. He couldn't teach me how to demonstrate and I wouldn't have wanted to be a demonstrator. So I just immersed myself at the time into what was a very, you know, modest manufacturing setup there, as well as a warehouse setup there. And um, it was probably a dozen people in total. Um, so really small number count. And I guess I learned, you know, literally at grassroots, uh, you know, manufacturing, you know, very manual. It was very labor intensive. And again, the warehousing side of things was, you know, pretty much, you know, picking products and sending it out. And at the time, the natural progression by this stage was from demonstrating, we started to sell products into catalog companies like Clean Easy and Betterware and, and various different sort of, I guess, sort of bespoke traditional hardware stores as well. Okay, and and how did that how did that come about? Was that a, a proactive decision by your dad, or did people come to you? And 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 how did the step then go from you know hardware stores and cleanies and betterware to the to the next stage of the business? So I guess you know that by this stage maybe 
about 18 months had passed and um i did i i i enjoyed everything that i was doing there but i could see so many like i said there was just zero process there was it was all literally you you could turn up on any given day and anything could happen and that would be the good the bad and the ugly and it it, it was you know at times there was a revolving door with the 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 small number of headcount we had some people would leave on a friday then they'd be brought back on the tuesday and it was just i used to speak to my father and you know i can remember every day in my very early time working as i was i'd go up to see him in his office and i'd just sort of like run i'd be in you know my working you know attire sort of you know very uh, i mean we didn't even have staff uniforms and it was just pretty much your um the kind of clobber that you'd wear that you knew was going to get dirty and muck it up. But I'd go and I'd speak to him and I'd say things like, you know, we'd have been doing a production batch at the time. And I don't know, two thirds of the way through, Phil, of this production batch, we'd run out of packaging or bottles or whatever. And then there'd be a whole, you know, running around saying, what we're going to do with the third that's left? Are we going to decant it? Where are we going to put it? Then it would be in the warehouse. There'd be an order that was due for delivery on the Friday. It's by now it's Thursday PM. And we can see that we're nowhere near fulfillment of it. And it was always, they always seemed to be an immense amount of panic on. And I used to go to him and, and be discussing it and saying, you know, there's got to be a better way of doing things here. And he just sort of, he used to look at me as if to say, you know, uh, we've, we've got the orders. If they can't source it out down there, then, you know, um, I've done my bit kind of thing. And it, it, I guess from there, that's where I felt to myself, I need to make a difference. I need to start getting underneath the process side of the business and seeing how we can actually start a week on Monday and get to Friday and actually achieve, I guess, a production plan and, and how we can get the orders that are necessary to go out on time in, in you know, if not 100%, 95% fulfillment. Right. Right, so he was very. I've I've sold I've sold it. You you sort the rest of it out. Yeah, he wasn't. You know, I guess what I learned off my father was he was his skill set was definitely he was a fantastic demonstrator. He was a great ideas person. Um, so as a consumer product, he would know what people you know what would create an energy for people to either want to purchase or engage with. You know, and he was never. I guess, you know, another big learning was the fact that I could see he wasn't a, a lifestyle person. So it wasn't like he was running a business to just service a lifestyle. It was something that he was passionate about, but he was a true entrepreneur. He wasn't managerial or processed in any way. And I guess that's when I came in, that, that was the first major task that I took on to, to really get underneath the day-to-day -day running of the business of the operation. Right. Okay. And at this point, is it still just one product or has the product range started to expand? So at this point, it's, it's pretty much one main product. Um, and I'm getting underneath it as far as, you know, putting new presses, just very simple things like, you know, how we would before doing a production schedule, as simple as it sounds, making sure that before we actually detail what we're about to make a recipe batch of, can we go and check the components? You know, can we check that there's X amount of components there, not just of a bottle and a cap, but we need the right labels, we need the right outer box, and just making simple checks in place. And then again, orders, instead of 
confirming to the customer the delivery is going to be there on Friday and then get to Thursday morning and realize we've got absolutely no chance of achieving it, we'll actually make a commitment to the customer based on a fact of what we know we can achieve. And if for whatever reason there's a breakdown, we'll communicate. We'll communicate with the customer and make sure through the chain that there's a communication trail so there's not this last minute panic and everybody's, you know, up in arms as to what's happening. I suppose, I suppose this is all sort of manufacturing 101 stuff, isn't it? It's, you know, have we got the stuff? Have we got the bottles? Can we get it out? Exactly. And, um, you know, we weren't, we're such a basic company at that stage, Phil, that we didn't have any sophisticated, you know, EPOS system or computer system or SAP system that everybody has today. You know, we, we literally were manual from top to bottom. And it was something where, there's, there's nothing wrong with that as long as the checks and the communication that you're doing are correct. So once I've got underneath that, the next step for me was, I guess, I started to have a passion for, we used to get, and again, in them days, there was no internet, there was no email. So we used to literally get consumers writing to us. And again, I'd see this when I'd go see my dad at the end of the day. I'd see letters that he'd receive and it, there'd be letters saying, oh, I bought your product at such and so exhibition two years ago. Love the product. I've virtually finished it. I can't be without it. Where can I get it from? And this used to happen on a regular basis, Phil, and people would be, they'd be so complimentary about the product, but they couldn't get it. And I, I used to say to my dad, I'd say, this is crackers here. You've got a product that clearly there was never, and I mean this wholeheartedly, there was never any negative you know, response. And I guess you might not receive a letter telling you how rubbish something is, but you genuinely didn't receive any, um, you know, negative feedback. So I said, look, you know, we, how are we going to take it into mainstream retail or not even mainstream, just readily available in certain stores, even locally? Because because at that time, just you, 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 you're still doing it in, in sort of regional shows and fairs and exhibitions and stuff like that. It wasn't... Absolutely not. It wasn't, as we'd call B2B at the moment, you know, it wasn't, you weren't retailing, in, you weren't putting it to retailers. No, we were, like I say... So how, 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 did that, how did you make that happen? So from there, we put an advert out for an experienced um, salesman, somebody who could literally, again, going back to the 90s could go out and literally knock on doors and and go make people familiar with this product. So we did do and we were very fortunate to get a guy who he he worked for the business probably for about 12 years. And his name, uh, Mike Allen, he was an experienced sales guy, a real door opener, probably wouldn't last two minutes in the modern world today. But in the in the world that he lived in at the time, he he had skin like a rhino and um, he just literally took, um, you know, he wouldn't take no for an answer and he'd, he'd literally wait in people's receptions. And he did do, he used to present Astonish. We started to get some traction in places like the variety stores, like Home Bargains, B&M Retail, Poundland, etc. And at that stage, we started to then, Phil, you know, understand that we needed to come out with more than just this you know, miracle pace cleaner. We needed to extend the product range. Right. Okay. So actually the expansion into retail forced the expansion of the product range. 
Absolutely, yeah, because, um, you know, aside from anything, you can't be reliant on just the one product because however good we knew it was and however much people liked it, it was also quite a, a long-standing product. So the actual cycle of it, if somebody bought it, it could last them a year. So we needed to bring out products that were natural, you know, extensions to the range. And I guess this was another probably unique moment to the brand in the way that at the time, were probably one of the first brands going back to the 90s that would use a brand name on separate products in a category. So today it's very popular that you'll see brand names like Dettol or um, Silic Bang or Flash over a whole plethora you know, of different cleaning and hygiene products. But if I said to you going back you know, in the 90s, you very much had a brand name that was specific just to one product so astonished now going into things like our very first spray product was a window and glass cleaner. Um, so we went from having a miracle paste cleaner to a window and glass cleaner. And it just went from there as a natural progression. And, and how, you know, a lot of people listening who've got a product and they want to expand their range. How do you, you know, how does that process work? How do you go about going, right? Okay. What do we do next? So, uh, I guess one of the first things is is to try and identify a gap on the shelf. So what would happen is by this stage, I was getting involved in sales as well, Phil. Um, so as well as this sales colleague that we brought into the business, I was very much out in the field as well as dealing with the day-to-day -day side of the business. And I would identify the biggest thing, and I still do it today, at least once a week. I'll go and do what we call a comp shop where I'll physically pull up at a retail park and I'll go into stores and I'll go and look and I'll walk the the aisles of, of what our category is selling in and I'll see what's out there. I'll see what our own products are looking like, how the merchandise, how they're looking on shelf. I'll look at what our competitors are doing. And I guess another thing that came on a little bit later in time, we started to export products as well into certain international markets and our international partners that we were working with they had different products in their markets that we weren't familiar with here in the UK necessarily. And they would send us these products and sometimes we'd try and clone them in our, in our own laboratory here. So I guess, you know, a big, big aspect is you're looking at what's out there in the market and trying to identify gaps. After you've identified a potential gap, you need to then work out whether or not you can develop a product that's going to have either a price point that's going to work on shelf or a point of difference. Okay. Okay. And, and for those who, who, who just go shopping and, and just see products on shelves, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I, I feel that definitely, uh, uh, I don't think you can necessarily teach it, Phil. I definitely feel that it, it's definitely a skill set that I've been lucky enough to have where, I can get a feel for what we can become successful in if we launch it without having to do in-depth market research or I guess another big advantage of what we are today at Astonish is, is that unlike a, a huge corporate like P&G or Unilever that would take maybe two years from concept to launch of a new product, I can actually identify very, very quickly, what I feel is a gap or a potential for Astonish. 
and I can brief it into our laboratory. I can brief it into our design agency. And more often than not, I can go from concept to launch within about four to five months. Brilliant, brilliant. Actually, you've, you've just mentioned something that I was going to raise later, but you've mentioned sort of, I'll say, how do you go about competing with some with a giant like something like P&G? Is it, is it just price point? I definitely think that we, we've always stayed true to what we believe, Phil, which is developing a best-in-class product sold at true value for money. And I think, again, that's always been the case with Astonish in the way that we want our customers, first and foremost, to use our products and not feel to themselves that it's um, underperformed or it's not been as good as, if not better than the brand leader. And then after that, I have to give them a reason why they would switch from using a brand leader if it is just as good, if not better, which we believe is our value for money. And I guess the fact that we haven't got all the tiers and all the complexity that a multinational business would have, we're very, very lean. So I guess, you know, um, keeping on top of our cost base and our cost structure has always been a key aspect of how I've run the business. Again, you mentioned you just mentioned that I'd speak to the laboratory, and that you know, what what does what does a, a laboratory look like for somebody like you? I'm thinking sort of white coats and chemists and all that sort of stuff. Well, you're not far off the mark, Phil. It's um, it's very much that today. So if you came to our our new site here, you'll see I think there's eight chemists in there. And within them eight chemists, they're all either master's degrees in chemistry or PhDs. And ultimately, these are the scientists. They're, they're doing an extension of what you'd expect to see in a school lab, except they're doing it with a brief. They've been given, you know, a clear brief on what um, they're normally working to nine months ahead now. So anything that's fed into our laboratory by you know, coming from myself into the wider commercial team and then fed into the laboratory, we're working nine months ahead, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. And uh, have you got like a, a constant process of, of new product development? Always. There's a, there's a constant tune. We, we had to suffocate that a bit when um, we'd reached a capacity at our previous site that we moved out of not long ago. But it's we're having to permanently evolve. And that doesn't mean, Phil just bringing out new products after new products. We also have to, you know, monitor and, and understand what products within our range might not be, you know, worthy of keeping in the range at that time. So they might need discontinuing. There's new flavors, new variants. It, it's a constant. I always say to the guys here, when it, we're literally just as good as our last development. It's, it's a constant hamster wheel. We're going around and around and around and it'll never end. That's the, it's the livelihood of what we do is is MPD. Brilliant, brilliant. And you mentioned you mentioned your new uh, your new facility. Tell us about how you got into there because we discussed this before, and it sounds it sounds massive and amazing. It is. It's. Um, I, th I think that's you know certainly my proudest moment today is the fact that we this is my third move that I've done, Phil, and each time I've done it, it's been for the exact reason that the business has needed to have a bigger capacity and greater storage. And I think what's probably most satisfying for me is that, especially here in the UK, there's so many businesses that are just purely sales and marketing businesses. And 
There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, to actually, uh, you know, just to touch on what we spoke about earlier, to take a product from concept in your laboratory, literally from a brief that you've given, whether it be something you've seen out in the market or something one of your export distributors have sent you, you've given that brief to your own chemist in the laboratory. They've developed a formula that fits a price point that allows you to have a point of difference to what's on the shelf at the moment. And then to take it into your manufacturing stream in your own site here in the UK and actually manufacture your own product, warehouse your own product, ship your own product, and then ultimately see it on the shelves, not only here in the UK, but probably 25 markets all over the world. So it's, you know, it's hugely um, rewarding that we've been able to do that. And this new site here, I hope, will be will be my last move because I don't want to go through another one. But it it should give us, we hope, I would say, the next five years of our our growth journey that we're hoping to achieve. And that's great success you've had so far. But I'm sure, as all business owners who are listening know, it's not always a success. So tell us some of the maybe mistakes or errors you've made and what you learned from them. Ultimately, Phil, there's there's no exact blueprint as to how you run an independent business. And I always, you know, refer to the same analogy. If it was that simple, you know, everybody would be doing it. So ultimately, I've definitely made mistakes along the way. You know, some some ones I can immediately um, spring to mind are um, certain appointments that I've made. So certain even key personnel that haven't necessarily come to fruition. But what I've always done is I've never tried to prove a point where I can see very quickly I've made a mistake, if that makes sense. So I think one of the things that I've always done, when I can see I've made a mistake, you've got to try and move on from it and correct it as quickly as you can. So there's a couple of appointments over the years, um, which I guess is is not a terrible amount of you know misjudgment, but I could see very quickly you know, one of them I brought in who was the former MD of Nestle and I paid a, a handsome fee to a recruitment agency to headhunt him. But very quickly, despite the fact that we'd said that he was joining an independent entrepreneurial business to help, you know, take on um, a lot of the day-to-day burden from me to allow me to do other things, he just, he couldn't resonate with an independent day-to-day business. And he wasn't coming in to fix anything. He was coming in to assist us and, and to take us on that forward journey we we're already kicking on with. And I could see I'd made a mistake. So very quickly, whilst it was a difficult conversation, I, I had to park company in and go back to plan A, which was to find somebody else that was fit for purpose. And I did do. And that person who's come in has been one of the best things that have ever happened to me. So I think the first thing there is I've definitely made mistakes, but... I think my philosophy there would be don't be too proud, quickly react to them and, and put them to a side and correct them and move on. I think other, other ways where, again, if we've made a launch of a new product and we might have invested handsomely in the formulation and the packaging design and putting some advertising media behind it, sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, sometimes it, it just fails to live up to the expectation that we believed in. But but being a true entrepreneur, 
entrepreneurial business. We've we've had a go, and I always say that if we can do eight or nine things out of ten correctly and right, um, then we're definitely on the right path, Phil. We're not going to get it perfect ten out of ten every time. So yeah, don't be too proud. We've made mistakes, but correct them very quickly and move on from them. Before we carry on, I want to talk to you about the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. So this fair deal has two parts to an agreement. My half the agreement, every week I bring you inspiring, interesting and fascinating Leeds business owners for free. Your half of the deal has just two simple steps. Number one, I want you to share this podcast with just one person who you think will get value from it. Number two, either if you're listening, post a review of the show on the Apple Podcast app or at podchaser.com, or give us a five stars at Spotify. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. That's all. Fair deal? Every week we ask our guests to give us a how-to. Now I know this week, Howard, you're gonna give us a how-to, how to be a great business owner. I think for me, Phil, the three things that I would say have stood me in the best stead have been, definitely you can be, um, the most creative, the most um, whatever you want to call brilliant business person there is, without great people, you're not going to be able, certainly in the industry I'm in, um, to maximise that journey without great people supporting you. So certainly how do you get them great people? Like I've said, I've made mistakes in the past where there might have been an agency who've gone out to recruit and you might have let your head get influenced by the fact of somebody coming from this huge multinational that automatically they're going to be shoehorned into your own business and be this great success. So I think over the years now, what has been a massive benefit to me is definitely the people I've brought in. And when I'm bringing them people in, what do I look for? I look for values. I don't look for what somebody is, you know, that exact talent to the role I'm bringing in. So if, if take, for example, Mark, our commercial director, um, Mark was somebody who I knew of him already, but I knew the values that he had. And I knew the values of what he stood for as an individual. And whilst I was bringing him in as somebody who could get astonishing to all the leading grocer chains, I knew that I had the right product and if I can get the person with the right values, I just know that that synergy is going to work for me. So that's the kind of aspect that I've used with a lot of key individuals that I've brought in, Phil, and probably the six or seven most influential people that I work alongside here at Astonish and I'm fortunate enough to have here at Astonish are people that I know. And because I knew them already, I knew what values they had. And I knew what values they could bring to astonish as a business and, and to me as a business owner. So I definitely would say to people that um, for key, key people that you're looking to bring in, don't be scared that you know them. Don't be scared that they could be family or friends or whatever. Look for values in what somebody stands for. And if that person stands for great values and they tick them great values, to me, I think, that's the most important thing in an individual coming to you. The second most important thing, I think you've got to get your cost structure right. So, so many people I hear 
they make some massive flaws in the way that they can take a product like our, our leading Mulder Mildew Blaster here and they'll cost the, uh, the bottle, the top, the label and the ingredients. And let's say that comes out at 50 pence. They'll say, right, I want to earn 40% margin. And then that's it. They don't cost in all the factors like wastage, like the utilities. The, they don't cost in even the overheads of the office, the admin people, the finance people. They'll just factor in what the immediate primary costs are that they're seeing. So I see so many business um, startups, Phil, or I hear of them that unfortunately failed because they don't get their cost structure right. And I think what I've always done is whenever we're coming out with anything is getting that cost structure absolutely right so that I know 100% from start to finish where we're at in terms of, you know, our sell price to what our cost base is. And I think, you know, ultimately the last part is as an individual business owner, you've got to have huge self-belief. And I don't mean that in arrogance, Phil. I don't mean that in, you know, uh, uh, not uh, respecting anybody else's views in the business. Far from that. But when I look at the journey I've been on, if I didn't have that inner self-belief always, when I've come up against tremendous challenges and difficulties, I think I'd buckle if I didn't truly believe in not only what I'm doing, but what I'm capable of, of driving us forward and, and what I believe in our brand and product. So you, you, you really do. You have to have that, that true belief to keep driving yourself forward and, and being um, incredibly determined to get to your, to your end goal. Now, I know you're sponsoring Leeds United now. So how did that come about and uh, what are the benefits from it? Uh, I don't think you can specifically pinpoint, Phil, a, um, a return on investment necessarily. I think some of the uh, synergies that we've had with Leeds United, for example, where we've been involved for, for eight years now, it started off as a more of a, an internal gesture for the staff here where we, we had a, a box at Ellen Road and we'd invite customers, we'd invite suppliers, and we'd invite our own staff here to engage with each other. So we used it as a, a hospitality base where we could, you know, bring all three together. It then sort of manifested itself and, and moved on to more advertising. They got the digital boards around and we even did the training wear last season. And I guess whilst you wouldn't necessarily think cleaning products and a football team with predominantly male supporters would have a synergy, we've definitely had huge brand awareness out of that. And whether it's um, mums washing their son's, you know, training wear kit at Leeds United or whether it's, um, you know, uh, husbands and, and wives, you know, going out shopping together and the husband's noticing our brand on shelf because they've seen it at Ellen Road before. And I think one of the biggest impacts is internationally, um, certainly with the Premier League, we benefited where our brand was, was shown all over the world where, um, we have international markets. So I don't think it's, you can't pinpoint exactly, you know, the return on investment, but we've always felt that it's given us a good balance between some of the hospitality aspects of what we want to bring to customers and our own personnel and 
just stretching the brand name. We're in an amazing space at the moment. We've moved to this brand new facility that can double our output. Um, we're year on year in um, 20 and 30% growth year on year after the last five years. So I just think that we need to keep doing what we're doing, you know, and whilst we've got the passion, the drive, our customers are uh, becoming more and more receptive to what we're doing. And we know that our end users are extremely loyal. We always say that once we've, you know, transferred a home user from whatever home hygiene brand that we're using to Astonish, we've got an amazing loyal shopper. You know, we don't lose them. So if we keep doing what we're doing, Phil, and make best-in-class products at best value, um, I don't think we can go wrong. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring, and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.